Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Adam Lee Seeley, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, Bradford, and the author of Canaan, Dim and Far, Black Reformers and the Pursuit of Citizenship, in Pittsburgh, 1945, 1915 to 1945. Welcome to the show, Adam. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Hetty. Sure, you're welcome. Canaan Demon Farr is an important text on African-American reform efforts in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, focusing primarily on the, on the interwar era. First, we, we will discuss Adam's biography, some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of his text, Cain and Dim and Far. So tell us a little bit more about your teaching and research interests. Well, uh, ever since I was a graduate student, I've been researching in and teaching courses about African-American history um, and, and social history more broadly from courses on the Gilded Age and Progressive Era to America Between the Wars to most recently, uh, my favorite class is a class I developed at Pitt on the Great Migration. Um, So the connections between the kinds of courses I teach and the kinds of research I do are, are, are quite close. So tell us how you got, you know, what about your um, your interest in African-American history? You know, how do you come to study the history of African-Americans? And why do you think it's important to study the history of African-Americans? Well, I think that as I neared the time as a graduate student to select a topic for my dissertation, I think I very quickly decided that I wanted to deal with some aspect of African-American history. And I think that seemed like a natural decision to me because of my broader concerns for social justice and because of a deep belief that I have that it's vitally important in a diverse republic like ours that we are producing new knowledge, illuminating the experiences of diverse groups of Americans, including African Americans, and that not only are we producing this new knowledge, but that we're sharing it. Because I think it's through this understanding of the textures and contours of the, of the American experience that we can move forward as a nation and move toward a more racial egalitarian society. Yeah, I, I know we've had this conversation before because, you know, I've known you for a while and, um, you know, I think your work is absolutely a part of kind of the history of the long movement theory and uh, civil rights history. So we're going to get into that a little further. I know in many ways your text is a classic social history, but I think that uh, many historians have kind of pushed civil rights historians to kind of broaden the perspective beyond um, looking at it from the lens of social history. I think it is a classic social history in many ways, but you also um, do the work of intellectual history. And as we intellectual historians like to say, all history is intellectual history. It's about ideas. So you're definitely talking about, obviously, the big civil rights associations like the NAACP, um, National Urban League. But I think you're also talking about ideas. So let's talk a little bit about because um, I think it's social history, but it's also intellectual and cultural history, right? It's a vast, I think, a, a comprehensive survey, really, in a lot of ways. But let's pause for a minute and talk a little bit about intellectual history. Um, how do you define intellectual history, or how would you define intellectual history? 
And how does this term kind of relate to the work that you've done here? Well, I think that um, I agree with you that as I wrote this book, I did not imagine I was producing an intellectual history. I thought I was producing a social history. And I see myself as a social historian. That said, um, it was important to me that this book spoke to other disciplines, including political history and social history and intellectual history. So I think of intellectual history, I think of it in its simplest terms about engaging with language, discourses, and ideas, and recognizing how these impact people's lives. So in the case of my book, it's about reckoning with the racial discourses that were at play during the interwar years and how black reformers worked to reshape them. And this was of particular concern to Robert Van, the publisher and editor of the Pittsburgh Courier. It was of particular concern to the staff at the, at the paper. And it's not by coincidence that every single week the Courier published stories about the achievements of black people that it decried racist depictions of African-Americans. For example, um, there was a weekly column produced by Joel Rogers called Your History. And it covered, it was sort of, it included a sort of narrative or a story along with illustrations and, and cartoon images. And it covered important achievements by blacks in both the US and abroad. Um, and so I think that Rogers and certainly Van recognized how important this was in a society that otherwise demeaned black life. Whether you're looking at mainstream white owned newspaper or other sources of popular culture, the music people listen to, the silent films they watched, all of these things in a way created a kind of racial education for white Protestants in particular. Um, and the ideas put forward in these products of mass culture helped to undergird systems of racial inequity throughout the first half of the 20th century. And virtually all black reformers knew this. And that's why they actively worked to push back against these discourses. Yeah, I like, I'm, I'm a little jealous here because your publisher allowed you to use um, quite a few images. <laughs> and mine is saying, telling me at least 10, 10 to 12. And I, you have a lot of illustrations here. I think it's over 30 illustrations of photographs and various images. And I, I'm glad you brought that point up, that uh, mass culture, right? And that's why I argue that the book is social, but history, but it's intellectual, but it's also cultural history, especially when you, as you go through it and, and see the amount of illustrations that um, are used in the, in the text. And um, it's kind of an aside, but how did you get, get away with all those illustrations? Were you, were you limited? No, that, that's funny. That never came up once. They, uh, they gave me a form to fill out for any images I wanted to use in the book. And of course I had to indicate where I got them from and, and demonstrate that I had gotten permission to use them. But other than that, it was carte blanche. They let me use whatever I wanted. That's great. Yeah. I, um, and I think it has a lot to do with too, obviously your work is um, a part of a, a larger, um, I think his, history, historiography of the civil rights movement in the North, the long movement before 54 in the North. And um, it's kind of, you know, the scholarship has kind of taken that turn. And um, obviously a few books, a lot has been written about, a lot of standard social histories have been written about Pittsburgh, right? And the labor movement and and, and so on. So um, I think, I think that, um, this is an important text for that reason, like because it bridges the divide between various subfields. Uh, we're going to get to the question of methods in a minute, but um, back to the term intellectual and how it um, applies to your work. 
Um, you look at obviously um, black elites and you know lawyers and doctors and so on, but you also look at migrants. And I'm interested in this idea of the intellectual intellectualism of the everyday. And I think with these sort of stories that you have weaved into the text of the migrants who came to the city who were interested in, you know, social justice um, throughout the book. I'm wondering about this idea of intellectualism of the everyday and how these stories fit into your larger narratives, because they were people with ideas. I mean, they didn't have law degrees and they weren't doctors, but they had ideas about their own freedom. But so how does this word or term intellectual apply to somebody, though, also um, like Robert Van, I think. For me, he's an organic intellectual in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think that, I think Van would have saw himself as as an intellectual in some ways. Um you know, he, uh, at the same time, um, he famously had a few um, notable disagreements with W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, on a couple of occasions, he criticized Du Bois as, as sort of a stuffy intellectual who was out of touch with um, the concerns of ordinary people. But at the same time, I think Van very much saw himself within that tradition. I think he saw himself as a thought leader. I think he worked very hard to lead campaigns that he thought would be important to African-Americans. Um, so I see him in that way, mm-hmm. although he wasn't an academic by any mm-hmm. means. He was a lawyer, right? He was highly educated. He, was, he had been involved in news, news work uh, for much of his life. Um, yeah. But then, you know, even if you, if you take it a step down from people like Van, he's still clearly a member of the black elite. But you look at sort of the southern migrants themselves, the kinds of people who came from the deep south. Because, you know, one thing, one of the distinctions I, I talk about in the book is that a lot of the main characters in my book, the black reformers, were themselves migrants. Right? Many of them, most of them are not, were not native-born Pittsburghers. Most of them grew up in the Upper South. Most of them achieved at least a high school education, but often a college-level education. And then they would proceed to move from one city to another in search of professional opportunities. And a lot of the reformers I talk about in my book spent only part of their careers in Pittsburgh. They came from other places. They came and worked in Pittsburgh for a period of a certain number of years, and then they moved on. And in that sense, um, there's this national network. The actors who I talk about in Pittsburgh were part of a larger network of activists operating across the urban north. But then there were the migrants themselves, right? the Deep South migrants, people who did not gain the college education, people who generally grew up in sharecropping families in the Mississippi Delta and elsewhere. When they came to Pittsburgh, um, first and foremost, they were drawn by the hope of economic opportunity. That was one of the major inducements for them. But also they were drawn by the possibility of greater political freedom. Most of them had been disenfranchised in the South. And many of them also hoped and believed that their children could gain a better education in the North. So this title of my book, Canaan Dim and Far, I selected that deliberately because it, it, uh, I extrapolated it from um, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And there's a passage in there where Du Bois talks about the post-emancipation freedom struggle. 
and he's evoking this figurative language, the language of the Exodus story, the escape of the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. And he's talking about African-Americans after emancipation. And he talks about how, even though it seemed like they were making progress, the Canaan was always dim and far away. And to me, uh, when I saw that phrase, I thought that that captured the theme of this book. This is a book, more than anything else, about striving, about ordinary people hoping, striving, fighting for a better life whether it's a deep South migrant or whether it's a middle-class African-American from the upper South, right? Mm -hmm. um, the reformers in my book and the migrants themselves were all hoping. All of them came to Pittsburgh with hope in their heart and all of them in their own way were agents working toward that hope, that Canaan, that expectation that there was a better life to be had. So when, when um, you take somebody like Harrison Gant, he's a, a guy um, who grew up poor, son of a poor sharecropping family in Georgia. And he moved to Louisville for a little while, then to Cincinnati, then he makes his way to Pittsburgh. And this is a guy who's there and present for virtually every major political development throughout the interwar period. From the beginning of the Great Migration in 1916, when he first comes to Pittsburgh, to this dramatic political transformation where African-Americans overwhelmingly leave the Republican Party and go to the Democratic Party. To the industrial labor movement in the late 30s, Gant yeah, is front and center in the vanguard of that development. Um, so throughout this book, I tried to balance that. Um, it is a book primarily about black elites, but in doing that, I tried to be careful that I didn't objectify the migrants and, and rob them of their agency. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the, the great... Um aspects of the book i like the way that you kind of sort of juxtapose the stories of the elites with the um migrants and um you know you could tell that 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 was an important story um that you wanted to convey um tell us let's talk some more about sources we mentioned the images and the illustrations and um but tell us some more about the sources um, that you used to shape your narrative yeah, well, let me talk first about how I how I um, learned about the migrants' experiences because, as you know, you know, the black elite left behind a robust written record, right? And I can talk mm -hmm. about how to how I um, recreated their experiences, but people from the working class often don't leave behind written records. And so recovering their experiences can present special challenges for historians. Mm -hmm. um, but in the case of Pittsburgh, and there's a few other cities that are like this, we were blessed to have a rich collection of oral histories that mm -hmm. were conducted by historians in the 70s and 80s, uh, most notably by Peter Gottlieb and by Dennis Dickerson both of whom wrote books about the black working class in Pittsburgh. So between the two of them, I had at my disposal uh, maybe about 25 oral histories, um, each about 45 minutes to an hour long. So these represented important sources of information. Um, certainly in that, the example of Harrison Gantt that I had mentioned, um, that was very helpful. And what was good, too, is that I could augment and supplement that with census records. And, and particularly through Ancestry.com, I could look these individuals up and see what pieces of their lives I could, what, what gaps in their lives I could fill in through the census records. So between that and the oral histories, I was able to get um, 
a fairly robust sense of, of who they were and what their aspirations were. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it's important because for students listening to the New Books Network, I know, uh, I'm sure a lot of grad students who are searching for a topic and maybe wanting to look at Pittsburgh um, might be asking themselves, you know, what sources am I going to use? So I think it's always important to talk about sources a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, recovering the experiences of the black elite was a little easier um, in the sense that there was a larger body of written work to draw from, including black weekly newspapers, um, the records of the Urban League and NAACP. Um, I know right in Pittsburgh, um, at the Archive Services Center, which is owned by the University of Pittsburgh, there is a very robust record of the Urban League of Pittsburgh, and that was definitely an important repository for me in, in terms of annual reports of the league, correspondences, various studies and surveys that they did, pamphlets, meeting minutes, um, all those sorts of things um, were important sources of information. Sure. Yeah, it looks definitely like um, a vast um, array of sources. Um, tell, let's um, focus more on the text itself. And um, a leading question I have is, so your work is a part of a body of literature that has ri- been written on the North and the various works written on Pittsburgh and if not other cities in Pennsylvania. I know, for instance, Philadelphia has gotten a lot of attention by historians, uh, it's making me think of uh, Matthew Countryman's Up South, and they're making similar arguments about cities like Philadelphia or, or Beyondi's work on um, New York, um, and my own work on, on New Jersey. And so I want to know what makes your analysis unique or distinct from the previous studies of, of cities in the North like Pittsburgh? And um, what historical interventions do you think you are uh, accomplishing uh, with your text in particular? Yeah, well, I suppose there are a number of pieces to the response there. Um, The answer, in some ways, may go back to how I settled upon my dissertation topic to begin with years ago. I had mentioned at the beginning of this interview that I knew I wanted to deal with Black Pittsburgh in some way or another. But as I began investigating this topic, I discovered that a lot had already been written about African-Americans in Pittsburgh. There were at least three monographs, for example, and a a host of other works. Um, And it was good work. And I began to despair of ever finding a topic, Hetty, when something serendipitous happened. Uh, The librarian at the University of Maine, who knew I was interested in Black Pittsburgh, he said to me, Adam, I've got to tell you something. We have a temporary subscription to the digital archives of the Pittsburgh Courier, but it only lasts two weeks and then we lose the subscription. And I thought, oh. This was in the early stages of my dissertation. And so Mm -hmm. I spent the next two weeks, 12 hours a day, in the library, probing the digital records of the courier. And my intent was to gather as much primary information as I could. But in the process of doing this, I began to wonder about the very people who wrote these stories, the cartoonists, the feature writers, the journalists. And that's when something clicked, that those works that had been done on Black Pittsburgh had been done almost exclusively on the Black working class. Hmm. And extrapolating outside of Pittsburgh, that seemed uh, overwhelmingly uh, to be the theme. And to an extent, this makes a lot of sense. After all, the Black elite represent a minority of the Black population. But whenever, whenever black reformers did come up in these studies, it was very often in a dismissive kind of way. 
they were often framed as individuals who were accommodationists and who were preoccupied with their own class status and who sponsored programs that disproportionately benefited the black elite at the expense of the working poor. And you can see this coming out in books like Alabama North or um, Peter Gottlieb's book on black migrants in Pittsburgh and a host of other studies. And by this time, having read documents produced by Pittsburgh urban leaguers and documents produced by staff in the Courier, I got the sense that this wasn't quite right. That this characterization of the black middle class as being inordinately focused on their status with the community, it was missing something. You know, so this brings us back to this idea of racial uplift. Um, we know, right, that, that um, among the strategies reformers pursued was this thing that we think of as racial uplift ideology, racial mm -hmm. uplift. And part of this is predicated on a belief that if you can just teach migrants middle-class values, if you can inculcate them with the values of sexual monogamy, workplace reliability, genteel public conduct, and a host of other Victorian values, if you can inculcate them with those values, this is, number one, it's going to be conducive to their own personal uplift. And number two, it's going to undermine um, racist rhetorics that have been used to subordinate African-Americans. You know, this is, this is a major piece of what racial uplift ideology is about. And this was part of their thinking. I think a lot of reformers believe this. And it's true that Pittsburgh Urban Leaguers, um, to a certain extent, led programs of that nature. You can see it in their home economics programs, for example. But that's not all they did. I think they had a much broader conception of what activism means. But a lot of historians could only see that side of their work. There was an incompleteness to it. Mm -hmm. And Kane and Dimon Farr attempts to provide a more nuanced and a more rounded portrayal of what motivated them and why they did what they did. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, back to the title for a second, actually, it makes me think of the Roboto book, uh, Canaan, um, uses the word Canaan in the title. Uh, Canaan Land, I think, is the title. And I think your argument as reflected in the, in the title is, um, you know, Canaan is still dim and far, even after you make it out of the horrific conditions in the South. And I think Roboto is suggesting, you know, the um, African-American, you know, communities who left the South, you know, had come to believe they were reaching Canaan in the North. So I like the play on the title and how it sort of itself is engaging a, a body of uh, historiography about Black elites, Black elites in the North. Um, and um, it sounds like you're taking on Kevin Gaines <laughs> and uplifting the race. Is, is that what you're doing, Adam? <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, yeah, I think Kevin and I come from slightly different interpretations. But, uh, you know, he's obviously a towering figure. Um, but, but, yeah, I think he's representative of that school of thought, which, by the way, I, mm -hmm. I think is is um, the dominant narrative still. Right, sure. I think, yeah, I think that's how we, when we met at the conference a couple of years ago, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a similar argument about the Black elite in New Jersey. Um, and I think it has to, it, it links back to the question of sources. You know, what sources can you find? What written sources? You know, and and most of us are using the the NAACP papers or the National Urban League's papers as you know the go to sources, but there's more to the story. Um, it's more nuanced, especially before 1954. I think I think you get a different story after 1954 uh, with some members of the Black League, um, and I think we need to 
think about chronology in terms of what um, depiction of the black elite that we're developing, depending upon the chronology that we're looking at. Um, I think your book raises a lot of these questions. Um, tell us some more about the migrant stories, though. Obviously, we know Robert L. Van is kind of a um, central um, character. Um, but also, I have a question about him. It's astounding. I don't think, is there a, a biography or an intellectual or social biography of Van? Does yeah. that even exist? Yeah, there is a full-length biography written by Andrew Buny, um, published in 1974. And um, Buny's interpretation of Van was very much in keeping with new left intellectual tradition in the mm. sense that um, overwhelmingly Buny characterized Van as an insincere self-promoter. Mm. In other words, the editorial campaigns that the Courier launched were calculated a, to augment Van's political stature, and B, to augment the courier's circulation. Hmm. Um, obviously, it's a little bit new. Buny was a talented historian. He's a little bit fairer, more nuanced than that. But over, overall, that is the portrayal. And um, so this idea that there's a certain insincerity to Van's reform campaigns. This idea that Van's reform efforts were calculated first and foremost to benefit himself and only secondarily to benefit ordinary African-Americans. This is the same kind of portrayal you see Peter Gottlieb put forward regarding the Pittsburgh Urban League. It's the same kind of portrayal Kimberly Phillips put forward when talking about the Urban League of Cleveland and on and on and on. And from mm -hmm. the 1970s up to the present, you're still seeing that kind of portrayal. And here's what, what I would say. Um, Van absolutely was concerned about his political reputation. Of course he was. He was concerned about his political stature. He had an ego. He was flawed. Um, and absolutely, he was concerned about the courier's circulation. He owned the business. He had employees who depended on him. If the paper went under, there goes 80 staff members, right? From the typesetters and mechanics and janitors at the courier's office to the feature writers and the columnists. So he's a businessman. Um, yeah. But the thing is, it's not either or. Eddie. Right. It's, right. You can be concerned about your business doing well and also be concerned about social justice and, and be sincere. And this isn't to say that Van didn't make mistakes and that, and sometimes the courier slipped into what we might call yellow journalism. Sometimes it produced sensationalist stories. And I can tell you one, I can tell you about one instance that caused a, a bit of a kerfuffle between the courier and the NAACP. Um, this happened, I think, in the mid-20s, late-20s maybe. The NAACP received this pretty large donation from a liberal donor um, that was meant to be used for various causes that NAACP leaders thought appropriate. And here I'm talking about the national branch of the NAACP, not the Pittsburgh branch. Um, one day, I think it was in October, the Courier published this damning story with the title NAACP slush fund aired. And it insinuated that leaders like Walter White and William Pickens um, misused the money, that they squandered significant amounts of money. The article, um, W.E.B. Du Bois was targeted in the article as having wasted tons of money on a research project in South Carolina. Um, in the language that the, in which the article was written was, let's say, less than charitable, less than nuanced. So you can imagine um, how leaders in the NAACP felt about that. Um, 
So that's an example. I bring that up as an example of sometimes the courier wasn't helping, right? That's not helping anything to try to bring down this organization um, to make making these allegations that turned out to be not super well-founded. But that doesn't mean overall that the courier wasn't doing something vital. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think the, the standard portrait has been of, of the elite has been very um, one-dimensional. Um, I think the claim you're making in your text is for more a multi-dimensional portrait and, and ultimately more humanistic. Like you say, um, Van is a businessman. He's got to worry about his employees, but he's vain, right? He's got a level of vanity. Like, but I think it's a level of vanity that maybe we all have, you know, about our stature, you know, in the community. Um, but I think getting at a more new, more nuanced portrait ultimately means a more humanistic portrait and um, less flat and one-dimensional um, is where I think or hope that the scholarship is kind of moving in a, in a, in a new direction, although there is that dominant narrative still out there. Um, tell me more about the, the migrants in your story. Um, in the introduction, you talk about the elites and the reformers who initiated social justice campaigns, but then you also say the migrants gave um, these campaigns shape and force. So is there one uh, migrant story in particular uh, you want to tell us about that helped to give these campaigns uh, shape and force? Well, yeah, yeah. I think first it's important to say that, you know, um, when the courier leads this charge to leave the Republican Party and join the Democratic Party in 1932, it's everyday people, right, black migrants, making choices here, right? Of course, they can read the courier. Of course, their thoughts might be influenced in part by the things the courier says. But there's an act of agency here to make this decision that you're not going to vote for the party of Lincoln. Instead, you're going to cast your vote for a candidate like Roosevelt, whose party, by the way, endorsed the Jim Crow system in the South. I mean, that's not an easy decision to make. It's right. a tough decision, and it's a calculated decision based on a strategic assessment of the information at hand. And that active, calculated decision-making characterizes migrants' experiences before they even come to Pittsburgh. Um, there are hundreds of letters dating from about 1920 or so, that migrants wrote to a man in Pittsburgh named John T. Clark. So around that year, Clark published an article in Black that was published and reproduced in Black Weekly newspapers across the country. And the article said something to the effect of, Dear Southern Blacks, there are all kinds of great jobs in Pittsburgh the great living opportunities. I urge you to consider coming here. Um, if you're the type of person who's got a family and you know a skilled trade, this is the city for you. It's an important qualifier there. But what mm -hmm. followed, I think, was remarkable. Hundreds of African Americans, most of whom had some, some skilled trade, they wrote letters to John T. Clark asking about, I don't know, normally they'd say, well, my name is so-and-so. I work in, in such and such a trade in this city, but I'd like to know more about what's going on in Pittsburgh. What kinds of jobs specifically are available? What are the normal wage rates? What are good places I can go for lodging? And, oh, by the way, what's the weather like in Pittsburgh, right? Because if you're in Jacksonville, Florida, you may not be too familiar with that. Mm. Yeah, sure. And I bring this up all the time with my students that this is what agency looks like. This is an act of strategic information gathering. 
And migrants wrote letters. They read accounts in Black Weekly newspapers. They corresponded with friends and relatives. They gathered information through word of mouth or from labor agents in the South to make these strategic choices about whether they were going to migrate, the timing of their migration, and the location of their migration. And this didn't stop. When they get to Pittsburgh, the same kinds of things are at play on a daily basis. So a specific example I can provide you for you is a, is a guy named Ben Carruthers, who grew up in the Deep South and learned the upholstering trade. And he decided to leave the South when a lynching occurred nearby his hometown. An African-American had been lynched. And this was a moment in which Carruthers decided the time was right, that he was going to leave. We ultimately settled in Pittsburgh, but he couldn't find any work in his trade. He was an upholsterer, couldn't find any work. The only work he could find was work as an unskilled laborer in one of the steel mills in Pittsburgh. And this experience ended up radicalizing Carruthers. And within a few years, he joins the Communist Party in Pittsburgh and becomes an active member until his death. Um, but one of the striking things about Carruthers was that he was actively involved in trying to organize black workers throughout his entire life. And not only organizing black workers, but building interracial unions. So when the industrial labor movement gets going in the mid-1930s, Carruthers partnered with staff in the Urban League of Pittsburgh to get convince black workers to join CIO unions in the city. Um, this was a challenging task. Black workers in Pittsburgh and in other cities had been excluded from the labor movement for decades. And often um, they were subjected to mistreatment on the shop floor by white workers. So when the CIO formed and began this national effort to create interracial industrial unions, there was a lot of reticence on the part of black workers in Pittsburgh to trust these unions and to join in them and it was people like Carruthers doing that front lines groundwork that helped bridge that divide. Carruthers partnered with urban leaguers to create these massive labor rallies. Carruthers helped urban leaguers create something called the Workers' Council, which were meetings of black and white workers to talk about their shared class interests. And Carruthers also infiltrated local mills to speak directly with black workers and to try to persuade them to sign a petition to join the union. So this is an example of somebody giving force to a larger social justice effort. All right. He sounds a lot like um, Ernest Thompson in New Jersey um, and the National Negro Labor um, Coalition um, that he created. I mean. Ernest Thompson was a factory worker, but he was he wrote two books before he his death, including a biography of his life, trying to organize, you know, out of those connections with CIO. And um is a fascinating story, something I'm working on, um, Ernie Thompson. Mm. Um but yeah, so there might be some room for some comparative um analyses between what's happening in northern cities, you know, you know, like Pittsburgh and um, Newark, New Jersey, or Ernest Thompson was from the Oranges. And, um, but he's doing similar type of work. Um, and I would argue they really are both organic intellectuals. I mean, they're producing ideas, they're writing them down. Thompson's writing books, you know, and um, but while working all day in a factory. Mm. I mean, it's like these amazing stories. Yeah. Um, tell us about the role of women in uh, your story. I know you talk about the fact that the women are doing most of the um, 
grassroots, much of the grassroots, um, more gritty grassroots work you talk about in your book. Yeah, um, they really play a vital role um, in the larger set of reform initiatives that are at play during the time. Um, You know, take the Urban League, for example. The thing is, is that the people who staffed the Urban League, they were progressive. They were visionaries. And yet, to a certain extent, they were products of their time. Um, and, And so you think about men in the Urban League movement, they still had imbibed these ideas about gender that had pervaded the entire society. And this could often, I think, just occurred subconsciously. So I don't think it's a coincidence that you almost never see women in leadership positions in the Urban League of Pittsburgh during the interwar mm-hmm. years. Right? There, are, there were ideas about there are certain roles within the Urban League that are appropriate for men to handle. And there are certain roles that are appropriate for women to handle. Right? So the women Urban Leaguers were relegated to dealing with, quote unquote, women's issues. So this meant dealing with education, dealing with health, dealing with home economics, right? Male urban leaguers were usually the head of the industrial department within the urban league, um, or they'd be, you know, other other roles of that nature. So you look at um, the urban league's home economics program. In some ways, this is the most Victorian bougie thing (laughs) <laughs> you know, superficially, right? Right. Um, but there was a certain grassrootsness to it that I think was more important than people have recognized. So this was a program led by a woman named Grace Lowndes. Grace Lowndes stood as this towering figure within the Urban League. She was one of its longest active members. She headed its home economics department, which would later be called the civics department. And she wore many hats over a period of several decades. But one of them was as head of the home economics program. And and so she and other urban league women would go door to door in some of the poorest inner city neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. And their goal was to connect with migrant families. They would knock on the door, ask things like, is any, do you, how many children do you have here? How many lodgers do you have living with you? Is anybody showing signs of tuberculosis or other illnesses? What kinds of food do you have available in this house? Do you know where to find the most affordable and nutritious food? Do you know where to go? Do you know about hygiene and how to keep your infant alive and healthy? And this is the kind of thing that urban leagues did across the North and they really get smeared for it in the literature. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at this on the surface, it seems very classist and presumptive to knock on somebody's door. There you are, you're a stranger and you're asking these invasive questions. You can imagine more than a few migrants did not appreciate these kinds of visits, right? Some of these urban leaguers maybe, maybe even got chewed out. Maybe some got a door slammed in their face. But I think it's important to dig beneath the, class, the classist nature of this, to dig beneath it and see the real intent and understand what Pittsburgh is like circa 1920. Right? This is the great migrations getting going. And as the black population spikes, infant mortality runs out of control double the white population. The black adults die disproportionately from a host of diseases. And this gets worse and worse as the Great Migration progresses in these early years. Um, And urban leaguers believed that at least part of this had to do with the fact that migrants were unaccustomed to life in a dense inner city neighborhood that the migrants themselves were more accustomed to wide open rural spaces and that there's a role to be played here in helping them acclimate 
to this new environment. Um, so this is gritty door-to-door -door work. And it, I think it's absolutely probably true that some migrants did not appreciate these intrusions. But I think there's evidence to suggest that a lot of migrants very quickly recognized these visitors as friends and allies. I think a lot of migrants quickly recognized that women urban leaguers were there to help. And this helped bridge divisions. Because not only are there class divisions separating the reformers and the migrants, there are regional divisions. They speak with different dialects. Sometimes they dress differently. They have different customs. And women play a role in helping to close these gaps. Mm. So, you know, that's Grace Lowndes. Um, you think about a woman like Jeanette Washington, who was Pittsburgh's first black public health nurse. Um, you know, she, when she first aspired to become a nurse, she couldn't find a hospital, a teaching hospital in Pittsburgh that would accept an African-American. So she went to this, I think it was Mercy Douglas Hospital in Philadelphia, where she got her RN degree. And when she came back to Pittsburgh, she couldn't find a hospital that would hire her. And even the Public Health Association wasn't going to hire her at first until John P. Clark of the Urban League interceded on her behalf. And it was Jeanette Washington who um, every year, often several times a year, the league would sponsor, they were called Negro Health Weeks. And they, and they did other similar initiatives where it was a week where they would bring in prominent doctors, they would distribute pamphlets, they would have better baby shows, um, and they would have uh, free health clinics where you could bring your baby and get it screened for any early troubles, get it registered with a local hospital. And it was Jeanette Washington who was doing all of that. She was the one conducting the health screenings. And very often she's the one who, um, during house calls, right, she goes and visits these families in the inner city to try to see what she can do. So these are a couple of examples, and I could go on and on. Um, the League had a home and school visitor who interceded at local schools on the behalf of African-American children who were struggling and who often came from broken homes. And, you know, you think about the thing, things League women did, and then you think about the other programs that the League sponsored. This is what a social safety net looked like in the 1920s, where there was no government social safety net, and where black neighborhoods were lacking in basic government services. This, is, this was the best social safety net that the league could put together, given the circumstances. Yeah, so just a, a rereading of the National Urban League, right, which is always viewed as a sort of more elitist association. And um, you think about what the league is doing parallel to what the Black Nurses Corps of the UNIA is up to and there's a lot of similarities, right? Where Garvey's UNIA is more associated as a mass movement and um, channeling the working class, whereas National Urban League seems to be doing similar things in Pittsburgh. So there's some, I think, might force us to recast the way we look at the National Urban League. So as we wrap things up, um, the limits of reform is a sort of a last question. You know, how does the story end? How did the um, African-Americans in Pittsburgh respond to the limits of reform? Well, I don't know that the story ever, ever truly starts and ends. I think it just changes and evolves. I know, you, you know, you and I talked about periodization Right? And, and we create these artificial boundaries when we write books and articles. In my case, it's 1915 to 1945. But these are never definitive start and end points. Sure. What we begin seeing happening uh, in the late 30s and, and especially in the 1940s is that the nature of black reform work begins changing and adapting as the external circumstances change and adapt. You know, reformers in the 1920s, 
the, the labor movement excluded almost all black workers. The government didn't get involved in trying to address racial injustice. It didn't create social safety nets. Um, so urban leaguers formed partnerships with area employers and philanthropists because this was a space where you could acquire funding so that you could develop these social service programs. But with the New Deal period, the emergence of an interracial labor movement, and then later, the pressures of a Second World War, we begin seeing new possibilities emerge that were not present earlier. And so the reform movement begins to adapt. It begins to trim its sails to catch this energy. And so gradually, reformers begin experimenting. They begin leaving behind the cautious reformism of the 1920s. And they began adapting more militant direct action tactics that we typify with the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. And one big example of this is the Double V campaign led by the Pittsburgh Courier. Um, you look at the scenario. There are pressures. It's a wartime scenario, a massive pressure. And the Courier looked to tap into this and, and put a racial agenda on it by linking fascism and Nazism abroad with segregationism and fascism at home. Mm. This is a powerful rhetorical maneuver, and it helped build public pressure on the federal government to do something about African-Americans not getting jobs at plants and mills that had government defense contracts, for example, or African-Americans exclusion from various branches of the military. Um, you look at those things that were present before the start of the war, and the Double V campaign puts a lot of pressure on, on FDR and the federal government to address this. And this is the same kind of recipe that civil rights activists could tap into during the 50s and 60s. Only instead of World War II and the fight against the Nazis, it was the Cold War and the fight against Soviet totalitarianism, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess that in answer to my question, it doesn't end, it evolves. Right. So by the 1950s, um, I don't know that it necessarily can be called black reform work so much as black activism, but it's the same kinds of people Right. If you look, think about sort of educated middle class African Americans. Right. So, what is next for you in terms of uh, your research? Well, I uh, recently got back from an archival visit in D.C. Uh, and I was looking at the NAACP records, and this is for um, my second monograph, which is going to take my current focus on black reformers but expand it into the realm of crime and punishment. And, and in particular, it's going to kind of deal with the same period, the Great Migration, the first phase, but it's going to expand it into a national study, in particular, um, the Midwest and Northeastern cities. So I'm going to be looking at, you know, what we've known now um, is that black incarceration rates began spiking in in parallel with the Great Migration itself. So as black communities increased in Philadelphia, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Pittsburgh, black incarceration rates go up. And there's a lot to this, including the rhetoric of black criminality. So this second work is going to look at reformers in black weekly newspapers, in urban leagues, in the NAACP, and it's going to take as its special focus efforts to address the criminal justice system and efforts to pursue equal justice. Sounds very uh, timely. And we look forward to your next book. Well, Adam, we've taken up enough of your time this afternoon, but I want to thank you again for participating in this interview about your engaging book. 
Hayden Dimon Farr. Thanks a lot, Hetty. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it.